Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This day, June 26, our panellists will examine the many, many facets of Israel Folau's battle with rugby union. We check in with Trump and the official launch of his 2020 campaign. And we look at Scott Morrison's pledge to cut red tape while also telling him exactly how he should do it. As always, we close with our books and culture segment, which is going to be an absolute ripper today. We're mixing it up a bit. We have Chris Berg talking about a reunion gig by an old Triple J favourite from the 1990s. We get around the Cricket World Cup, express horror at a little book by the world's littlest climate change zealot, and finish with Child's Play, a reboot of a real horror classic. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined as always by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Good morning, Scott. Great to have you back, Chris. Also with us in the IPA studio, our Director of Research, Daniel Wild. Good morning. And the National Manager of the Generation Liberty Program, Renee Gorman. Hello, everyone. Great to have you back on Looking Forward, Renee. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. There is only today, Thursday and Friday left in our end of financial year appeal if you want to get around that. We're not quite into Israel for loud territory in terms of fundraising, but <laughs> let's see what we can do between now and the end of the financial year. Speaking of Israel Folau, we talked about him way back on May 15th and it was uh, so many issues we brought out that day and it's only gone uh, into the stratosphere since then, Dr. Bird. It has. This is the story that keeps going. Um, Israel Folau, of course, is famous, now former rugby star, is famous for a Instagram post that he made um, proclaiming some conservative Christian beliefs um, about morality and so forth, that's got him sacked. Uh, Rugby Australia um, uh, dropped him. He fundrose. Uh, he did a fundraising project with GoFundMe for uh, li- to, to fundraise for legal action against Rugby Australia. This week, GoFundMe, which is a crowdsourcing website that allows people to donate um, to campaigns and to projects, pulled the fundraise down, saying that it um, violated the terms and conditions of the GoFundMe. Um, uh, website, GoFundMe platform. Um, That was very, very quickly replaced by the Australian Christian Lobby, who decided to host a fundraise on Falau's behalf, uh, putting money into a trust on his behalf, I should say. Um, They have raised $1.7 million since yesterday. We're recording this at 9.30 a.m. on on Wednesday. Uh, So since yesterday, they've raised $1.7 million. There's all sorts of issues with the Israel Falau thing, and they seem to be just building and building and building. We've got questions around... Um, was GoFundMe in the right? What? How should we think about uh, tech platforms denying service um, to, to people with conservative Christian views? There are questions about his contract that have been raised. There are questions about his um, the the attacks, the criticism of his wife for supporting her husband. Um, but why don't we start with the GoFundMe question? Um, uh, and, and Dan, I might, I might throw to you, how, how should we think about this? Because, I mean, GoFundMe is a private company, but they're very clearly making a political statement here, aren't they? They are. Um, as you say, they're a private platform and they should be free to you know, have anyone on there that they want, but it's clear that they have a, a political bias if um, Israel Folau was you know, expressing different views or was someone from a uh, different religious background, chances are he wouldn't have had the same um, situation with, with GoFundMe. Uh, but to me, this, this gets to a much deeper 
um, question about the very nature of the liberal democratic society that we live in. Um, the, the basis of it really is being tolerant to other people's views, having a live and let live approach to what other people believe and think. And um, the whole edifice is based on an idea that you can have an Israel Folau living alongside a, a militant atheist um, who has divergently different views um, and they can still coexist within the same society um, without uh, having the kind of um, disruption that we've seen with Israel Folau. Uh, my concern is that it's not so much a legal or government uh, concern, it's more a concern about where our culture um, is going and the ability of people to tolerate views of people with whom um, they disagree. And I worry about what that means for the sustainability of a liberal democratic society when uh, it's clear that people who have a certain belief um, will be have a harder time in expressing and living by those views, whether it's to do with uh, being dismissed by their employer, whether it's to do with the way that they're attacked um, by people uh, online. Uh, and so I worry about the the ability of our liberal democratic institutions to be able to cope um, with the massive cleavage that we're seeing um, in our society. And this is very much the Maria Falau story. So Maria Falau is a netball star, um, married to Israel Falau, of course. and But she's come under attack by some of her netball colleagues for just simply sharing um, the information about Israel Folau's fundraiser is that does this speak to uh, Renee in your view does this does this speak to that sort of fundamental cultural illiberalism moment that we're going through that we can we don't just have to go after the person that we're targeting we have to go after his family for supporting him as well yeah I think that's really scary and it's actually kind of like a, a strategy of a totalitarian government because very very you know communist governments and horrible regimes from the past have realized that People will be martyrs for a cause, but they're less w willing to be a martyr when their family's come under threat. And they couldn't get Israel Folau to be quiet, so they go after his wife, which I found really disturbing. And also they're going after netball, which I'm going to make the argument is actually Australia's game. It has the <laughs> highest <laughs> participation rate, um, higher than AFL. Do you play? Than played in league. every state? Yeah, played in every state. Um, do I you, actually do don't, you play netball? I don't play. <laughs> but well, you should. Yeah, <laughs> with, I should. With an opinion like that. <laughs> Um, and I actually find it really disturbing that they're going after sport because sport is actually a real cultural thing in Australia that unites us. It's where people of completely different backgrounds, completely different opinions can come together, have a game and get along. If you want to see multiculturalism working, go down to Dapto or some, you know, far-flung suburb and see people from all different backgrounds coming together at a local rugby club or a local AFL club. But isn't yeah. – sorry, it, it's, uh, I, I agree with you, but isn't that precisely what Rugby Australia or um, Netball Australia would say as well, that the, the, the point was that Israel Folau had been discriminatory in some way against a certain segment of their fans and therefore, you know, they couldn't – they could not accept that and that, that is something that they had to shut down. I'm, I'm not comfortable with this and I'm, I, I don't mean to make this argument, but isn't that precisely what they're saying? Yes, but their solution to it was to completely amplify that message. If you had just left that message on Twitter and not um, brought it up, no one would be talking about it. I have gay friends who are saying that this is worse for them right now because they're constantly hearing about this issue of Christians believing that gays are going to hell and they've kind of amped up this fundamentalist Christian base. It's actually 
created more division um, more than anything. And it, it doesn't come down to us all, you know, being together because, um, you know, we all have to think the same thing. It's that we have to be accepting of people's right to think different things. It's certainly... Um, are you you're right there, Renee, it, it has been tremendously polarising. I think that's been the thing about GoFundMe. And, and in some ways, uh, it was almost inevitable that GoFundMe would pull it. Um, you know, it, it's a fi- you know, very officially committed uh, to the Rainbow Coalition and that's it's right as an as a entity to, to do that. And right from the get-go, people were saying, how can they possibly be hosting this campaign so in many ways the the least surprising thing was that they did it uh but it has now amplified everything and and of course there's a very good argument that by using what were effectively their reserve powers because like there's no particular breach of of uh their terms and conditions in terms of uh, what Folau was doing you mean gofundme yeah gofundme um uh you could argue that they've actually discriminated against him on the grounds of his religious belief. So, you know, it too can play the discrimination game. But certainly since then, all it's done is amplified both sides of it. So uh, the Australian Christian Lobby, through setting up its fundraising campaign, has raised, you know, three times as much money in about a third of the time. Uh, absolutely remarkable. Then on the other side, it's it's the sheer relentlessness. It's like watching bloody Terminator Two. So, oh yeah, we should we you know GoFundMe's got to take it down. Oh, uh, Australian Christian Lobby's raising money instead. Um, we're going to complain to the Charities Commission. Oh, um, God, we've got to get onto ANZ to make sure because they sponsor the Silver Ferns and, Mar- and Maria Falau plays for the Silver Ferns, so she should be sacked from playing for the Silver Ferns and sh- and and they should be sacked from the Adelaide Thunderbirds, you know, which is Liz Ellis's. Gr- it's the it's the sheer relentlessness, and this is this is what deplatforming actually looks like. And thank God for Netball Australia for actually saying. Yeah, no, we don't agree with what she said, but no, we're not going to do anything about it. Go but how, how widespread do we think these sentiments actually are? Because um, I, I, have a, I, I have a theory that we haven't really, um, uh, corporate Australia, the corporate um, environment around the world, hasn't really been able to judge what anti-sentiment on Twitter or on Facebook actually means. So they receive, say, a dozen attack tweets some um, people have criticised them. Why aren't you doing anything about this? I don't think they know how to interpret. If we get a dozen, does that mean 12% of the population is opposed to us? Does that mean um, uh, 100% is opposed? Does that mean there's only 12 people in the country? I don't think they know how to judge this. So I wonder if w- this illiberalism that we're seeing and that corporate Australia is is trying to pursue in response is actually just a it's not what, quote, middle Australia cares about and it's not what the vast majority of the Australian population thinks. I think that's right, that the vast majority aren't too fussed about it and that's the way things kind of always were in this country where um, I was just saying before we went on air that it's a shame that we have to even talk about these kind of issues because in times gone by, people wouldn't even really raise an eyebrow. They would say, oh, Israel Folau is having a rant about something again, um, looking forward to watching him play rugby on Saturday. So... Um, the fact that um, Israel Falau... <laughs> I know, that there was that old phrase, the, uh, he's just an odd duck. You know, just, well, what's wrong with that? Yeah, I mean, so um, I think that we have become, though, a lot less free in this country over the last couple of decades where, um, where everybody has to be involved in something political now. So you can't go to the football without, 
having some kind of political um, issue brought up. Um, you have to be willing to go out there and defend yourself or defend your husband, which is something for an opinion that they've expressed within a church, as an example, which is a completely private association and organization, whereas in the past people didn't have to do that. Um, and so the balance has shifted to just ordinary people needing to defend what they're doing throughout their lives, which I think means that people are a lot more anxious, a lot more tense. Um, they're much more worried to talk about things in their day-to-day life. Um, well, it can get you fired. It can get you fired. And it gets to something fundamental, which Renee touched on, which is things like sport were always um, a place where people would come together from different backgrounds. And I think um, the rise of identity politics is in part a response to um, those kind of uh, civil society activities that we used to do together are the communal activities um, diminishing. So rather than people's getting an identity from their sport or from their religion or from other um, you know, domestic community um, activities that they'd engage in, uh, which gave them a source of identity and that identity could, tra- uh, could transcend um, their race or their religion or their background. And it's very important for a country like ours, which has a lot of people who are from overseas to be able to participate in those institutions. Um, given that they've been hollowed out to a large extent, people then move to um, identifying more with their race or their religion. And that's why um, comments by Israel Folau and others have become much more um, prominent in the public consciousness. Yeah. I wouldn't... Uh, Sorry, uh, go uh, on, uh, Rene. Uh, I really agree with that, but I think what we're also seeing is um, competing interests between corporations and sport, which is pretty much kind of a cultural centre of Australia. This has actually been a suicidal move for Rugby Australia. As soon as the Israel Folau um, case opened, the Waratahs season completely fell apart. (laughs) They did not make the eight. And the Waratahs are the most important team within Rugby Australia. If the Waratahs are going well, Rugby Australia is going well. So they were kind of attacking themselves and also attacking one of their major fan bases, which is... Pacific Islanders and Queenslanders because Israel Folau was was born in Queensland. And I think Netball Australia was obviously very intelligent and didn't participate. But we're seeing corporations who fund these sports being able to dictate how these sports run. And I think maybe there needs to be a look at how these contracts are are ruled up, like just as much as a player can't attack the... um, company that is the sponsor, maybe there needs to be a rule that the sponsor can't attack their players. Yeah, no, I, I think you're really onto something. So so coming back to Berg's uh, scene-setting question, I reject... You can, you can call me Chris. I, I reject that naivety hypothesis. <laughs> um, there might be a few uh, non-executive directors for whom it is true that they just, you know, they do panic when they see a bit of a Twitter storm. But as we said on this uh, podcast on May 15th, this is woke capitalism. I mean, these corporations are full of corporate affairs departments, um, which is where uh, people who can't be proper intellectuals go to pursue their identity politics agendas because they, you know, they're good for nothing else. They're the ones giving advice as the CEOs. Um, then you have the CEOs themselves may have various activist agendas, uh, which they're using their corporations for, and 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 this relationship. And in this case, Renee is exactly right. Corporations used to associate with sport because of the values that those sports represent. Now they're saying we have a set of values and the sports need to adhere to our set of values. It's the exact reverse of what's going on. And I, th- I think we will actually discover the limits of woke capitalism out of this case. I mean, in many, this, this legal action, which of course will take years will turn on a very narrow point about the construction of his 
contract. Um, you know, it's a little bit like Peter Reid. Uh, Peter Reid was just very lucky that uh, uh, the I NTEU had inserted a clause about academic freedom. Now, this is a, a different legal case, but again, it does turn on one of the specific terms and conditions. But I think that we, this, uh, Renee's right, this could actually destroy rugby union in this co country. Qantas, its contract for sponsorship comes up in a few years' time. What if they don't renew? What if they just walk away from the wreckage that they've helped create? This, so um, God knows how this is going to play out. Sorry, I just did I just blaspheme? No, that's fine. Sorry, Israel. We, we, <laughs> <laughs> um, James uh, Bolton, Pete Gregory made a point on the Young IPA podcast yesterday that um, this is the first major deplatforming from a tech corporation that we've really seen in Australia. It's obviously um, quite common in the United States where a lot of um, conservatives and, and um, other people have been taken off or denied service onto um, platforms like Facebook and so forth. Um, uh, Dan, how how should we how should we start thinking about um, what this means for in in the midst of this really significant debate we're having about um, uh, technology and competition, um, Facebook and Google and, and you know, GoFundMe and Instagram is of course a big it, part of the story. Uh, well, the way I I approach it is to see it. I see a decreasing distinction between government and um, tech companies and big companies in terms like non you know, like banks and so forth in terms of the effect that they can have on people's behavior. Um, so to take an example, we have a various amount of limitations on freedom of speech from a legal perspective in this country, like Section 18C, which of course should be abolished. Um, but then there's also the question, well, even if you were to remove a lot of the constraints on freedom of speech um, from a legal perspective, what would that actually mean? In, would that actually have a practical impact on people's lives if you've got an increasing number of people that are either using platforms to express their views or are employed in um, big businesses which place heavy restrictions on their ability to speak um, either on social media or elsewhere. And so in, in a way I feel that the, the usual distinction between public and private limitations on speech is something that's becoming um, a little bit less tenable to clearly delineate with uh, between. So in the past, you would say, well, you know, if you sign up to a company, you sign a contract and you're free to, um, you're free to uh, attenuate your freedom of speech in that contract and, and if you don't like it, don't sign the contract and go somewhere else. But what happens when the large number of companies and a large number of employers are all having similar provisions in their contracts and so what you can't get a job um, ultimately, if you have a, you know, the only way you can get a job is if you, um, uh, if you agree not to participate in the public square. And I wonder what that means. Again, going back to my original point about a liberal democratic society, what does that mean when people don't really have much of a choice? Um, they want to work, uh, but then they're they're not speaking out on important public policy issues. So I think that there is an issue on the right with how we think about freedom of speech and the extent to which um, private organisations are limiting um, our speech in the public square. But the GoFundMe story surely is a is a good example of, of the benefits of competition in this space. So um, uh, GoFundMe pulled it. Turns out that there's lots of other ways to raise funds. Turns out that there are lots of other platforms and you can set up a custom platform through the Australian Christian Lobby or or anything else. And 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 uh, I agree that these these companies, I think they're making some of these companies are making really bad strategic and political decisions and choices that are actually undermining um, many of their free market, uh, undermining their support amongst many free marketers who would otherwise support them. But but it the, this experience shows you that what we need is 
is competition in this space. Now, um, uh, given that, you know, welcome to the blockchain minute, I think that a big part of the new economy, the digital infrastructure we're building now, is building um, uh, networks and platforms that are uncensorable. So even if GoFundMe wanted to censor my transaction or wanted to censor my fundraise, it couldn't do so in this future decentralized blockchain world. But even before we get to that exciting new space, um, th there's just a lot of competition here and people move away. And I, I do take your point about um, uh, employment and large corporations and, and so forth. But again, there is massive competition in the labor market and there is massive space for competition on the internet. And it's hard for me to see that that creates anything other than an entrepreneurial opportunity for us to set up new organizations, find new websites and, and build things. It does, but it changes the transaction costs. So, as I was saying in the past, you know, you wouldn't have to worry about this. So, the average person wouldn't have to worry about it. Um, but today, yeah, Israel Folau might be okay and he can use the Australian Christian lobby. But what about the, the hundreds of thousands of people that don't have a profile? I mean, it's, it's not realistic to expect that they're going to lawyer up and set up a GoFundMe or some alternative to GoFundMe. Um, so, I get concerned about the cost of this. I don't think it's practical for an average person to be able to set up their own legal defense fund and the consequences people know that so they're just they're just quiet they just be quiet about things they choose not to engage um so i'm not sure it's that easy like i agree with the the benefits of competition we've seen alternative to gofundme we've seen jordan peterson set up an alternative to patreon and that's that's good and should be encouraged but the point is you can only do that if you're jordan peterson or israel Folau or dave rubin the average person cannot do that and people are being censored by companies by tech platforms and it is a big problem um a liberal democratic society can't survive when an increasing number of the captains of industry and the key dominating institutions in sport, business, politics, culture are actively censoring certain political opinions. Do you think that's just corporations kind of reflecting a cultural problem rather than corporations creating a cultural I, I, problem? I think a big part of it is... Um, uh, they're reflecting... So, I don't have any inside story about the GoFundMe, but I'm pretty sure, based on other things that have happened in the past, it went something like, um, rather than responding to public um, uh, agitation about GoFundMes, I almost guarantee it was internal... Um, employer data dissatisfaction. Oh, sorry, employee, employee dis yeah. dissatisfaction, and people angry inside GoFundMe rather than outside. And so there's that sense where I mean, this this goes precisely to your point, Dan. Um, there's this sense where we're building illiberal cultures. Um, and we're treating each other illiberally, and we're not sort of valuing pluralism. And we've decided that I don't think anyone I don't think anyone was offended by Israel Folau's Instagram post. I think most people looked at it and said, huh, <laughs> what an odd duck. Um, uh, but, but we've decided that that is beyond the pale for our fellow human beings to have those sorts of views or to share those sorts of positions. We find that offensive because we don't think we, um, because we're deeply illiberal as a culture. I yeah. think that's connected more to, it's not that, yeah, people are more easily offended these days. It's that the offended are more likely to come after you. So I think corporations are responding by being more enforceful of these kind of speech codes that they put on their staff or saying you can't go out and make these public statements because this is perhaps more of an American thing, but it's becoming a thing in Australia. We have these journalists who are pretty much activists who will come to a corporation and say, are you aware that this person worked for you and that they have this certain belief? And it's not really them saying, asking a question, it's them making a threat, saying, 
if you don't fire this person or, or come out and say that you don't like this person, we're going to start a witch hunt against you. And that's what we're seeing more of is this kind of activist journalism and, and this really far left that's it's willing to go out and just um, destroy, try and destroy a company over, oh, you had one person who um, was, say, uh, something quite controversial, let's say a Proud Boy. Or, Did you know you, or, you had or, a Proud Boy? Or Daymore at, uh, at Google yeah. with, the, with his paper on, um, on diversity. Yeah. It gets to um, Taleb's point about the minority principle that change will be driven by an intolerant minority and that's exactly what we're seeing in, in this country. A very intolerant minority are, are driving a big cultural change in this country um, for the worse. And, and, and things must have actually moved too far and as I say, this is a real test case because... You know that something's going on when Gillian Triggs, former president of the Human Rights Commission, uh, who I think it's fair to say has been subject to the odd bit of criticism here and there for those who believe in free speech, she actually believes that Israel Folau should not have been sacked and that he does have a right. She is absolutely consistent. He has a right to express his religious views. So something is, is going yeah, on when, so when, when Gillian Triggs comes out and says, hang on. We, we might be going too far here. Well, yeah, except this is a problem, right? So in the last couple of days, we've had a number of thinkers on the left and um, activists on the left start to get concerned that everybody's obsessed with contract law. And so if, um, uh, the president of the Media Arts and Entertainment Alliance tweeted, I think it was yesterday, gotta admit I worry when the, quote, left end quote, six comfort in contract law because, of course, everybody's saying, yeah, Rugby Australia was fine to fire him because it was in his contract that he had to be pleasant or something like that. Sarah Joseph um, is a human rights lawyer, I think, at Monash. Um, some uh, has, I'll, I'll read an extended quote from her. If people think that contract law should provide the answer here full stop, refalau, then presumably they're fine if contract law permits dismissal of NFL players taking a knee um, I'm not comfortable with that. Similarly, the argument that it's GoFundMe's platform so it can do what it likes might similarly be used to justify arbitrary censorship by bigger platforms like Facebook. I'm not comfortable with that. Gillian Triggs is talking, is arguing that employers should not be able to override a explicitly protected constitutional right. We're starting to see the evolution and creation of a movement on both the left and the right that would much rather have Australian... Um, you know, anti-discrimination law or, or, you know, the right to political communication be applied within contracts. So I am not allowed to sign a contract or a court would override a contract that I signed if it denied, if I signed away a right to political communication or something like that. I think this is hugely worrying. What about the freedom of contract? And if we, and, and I'm worried that if we keep heading in this direction, we're going to lose some of our basic economic rights. It's going to make it much harder for us to be employed. It's going to make it much harder for us to just make decisions about our, our life in, in, in employment in the community. Well, I think further to that, what they're starting to realise, it was better when people just didn't care as much. That's, that's, <laughs> no, and that's really the solution. I mean, the great thing about this country was people really didn't care about, not in a, not in a, negative or harmful way there's no didn't, a, a, a good get, didn't care get along <laughs> get along with your life but this gets to a fundamental point which is not it's no longer about tolerance it's about recognition it's not good enough just to tolerate people anymore that have a different view to the majority view you have to actively be seen to celebrate and recognize all these different viewpoints and lifestyles and that is a very authoritarian approach and is much different to um, the basis of of a liberal society which is i don't have to like what you think, I don't have to celebrate what you think, I don't even have to recognise anything that you do or say, all I have to do is not get in your way of doing it, 
but we have long passed that point and I think it's understandable that some, particularly on the right, are beginning to question whether government needs to become involved in, in some of these private contracts because there will be no public square. There'll yep. simply be no public square anymore if everybody is contracting themselves out of the right to speak freely in our, in our country. So it's Scott, the um, Tolerance Camp episode of South Park. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 still, it's incredibly relevant. I highly recommend everyone watch that. Uh, South Park can is... You, you've can thrown you, in a bonus, bonus culture pick there. Can, yeah, um, can you find us a link to that? And we'll we'll include prolific. that in the notes. Um, so, so, Scott, we've spent 25 minutes, probably the longest we've spent on any segment of the show so far on Israel. Flyer. I did say <laughs> it was multifaceted. Uh, it was definitely worth it. I think it was really three different topics... Wrapped up just in uh, Israel Folau. So I didn't even know how to spell Folau before this. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I didn't. He did used to play AFL as well. Yeah, I, did. I literally didn't know who it was. Yeah, yeah. No, no, <laughs> That's how it should be. That's my <laughs> no, point. You should need to know who he is. Yeah, yeah. No, no, very good. Um, we, 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 I resent that I have to. Yeah. We, we perhaps need uh, a bit of uh, to pivot to entertainment. So... Donald Trump <laughs> has launched his campaign. Why did you look at me when Spe- you said Donald Trump? <laughs> Speaking of sport. And and, uh, and the entertainment I'm thinking of, of course, is these uh, amazing uh, stadium-filling campaign events. That's right. So Donald Trump launched his campaign last week um, at a 20,000-seat venue, which um, we are told and looked like from the photos was completely full, in Orlando, Florida. Um, uh, this is the big statement, of course, we've been following very closely over the last couple of months, the development of the Democrats' um, uh, lineup and, and who's up and down there, and this is um, the start of Donald Trump's response. Um, so, uh, look, I, I think we should throw to everybody's um, impressions, but but my, my view... So he opened really with um, his greatest hits collection, so this is walking through through um, many of the themes of the 2016, including talking about the victory itself in 2016, talking about Hillary Clinton and her emails, um, which seem to have just permanent relevance, talking about Mueller um, uh, and the Mueller inquiry and investigation, talking about how he was going to build a wall um, and all that sort of stuff. The second half was much more on the positive story, um, of which he quite understandably cited GDP growth and unemployment figures, deregulation, tax cuts, judges. He thinks the tariffs are working. I disagree, but nonetheless, that's part of his story. Um, and that's what he's, what he's trying to do. I thought the most interesting thing, and I'd be interested in, in your views, is um, there's a, there was an extended section in, in the middle of his speech where he was tr- polling the audience, really, on whether the slogan for his campaign should be Make America great again, as it was in 2016, and you know everybody cheer and you know tell me how that is. Or should it be keep America great and you know everybody cheer? And so, so should it be we we've got work to do, or the country start again? The country is bad, and therefore we need to change. Or should it be I've changed the country; it's all fixed now. And should we continue um, this wonderful new America that we have? I I now to to take it slightly more seriously than I probably should. I think that's a problem. Right. If he's not sure whether he's running against something or running in his own favour, that that tells you that that there isn't really a narrative arc that they've developed. Um, famously, Donald Trump would use um, audience reactions to come up with new slogans and new approaches. Drain the swamp was famously in response to audience reactions. Um, but this, this this seems like a strategic problem more than just a, an amusing thing to do at a speech, right? It is, yeah, it is. And I think it's absolute classic Trump. Like you say, he didn't want to use drain the swamp and his staff 
convinced him to do it and then he said it. And then Try this one it. out. <laughs> and then everyone loved it. So then it became like one of his, his major campaign rally calls. So uh, I think you're right. It'll be keep America great, um, exclamation point, as he says. Uh, <laughs> no, I think he'll, he'll do that because and, – and he's talking about the economic uh, narrative. I think that will be the dominant narrative and to lock in uh, the arguments, you know, corporate tax cuts having – um, you know, withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement, reducing red tape, deregulation, those kind of things. I'm not convinced that's... He, he does have a problem with, obviously, in the United States, you've got voluntary voting. And so the main game there is getting people out to vote. That's all they do. They don't try and convince other people. They just need to get more of their guys out to vote than the other team's people out to vote. So that's where all the resources are. Um, I'm not sure a lot of the economics is being felt in those kind of Rust Belt communities. Um the aggregate figures are good, but the aggregate figures always disguise what's happening in any given community. Um, and, you know, the big thing really was immigration and build the wall, and he hasn't done anything on illegal immigration. Um, the wall isn't built. To his credit, he has tried to do many things. He was dealing with a Republican Congress that doesn't want to secure the border. Um, he's declared a national emergency, which I think was the right thing to do. He said he's going to put tariffs on Mexico if they don't do something, which I think was the right thing to do. So he has been trying to do something. The problem that he's got is that the establishment will not go along with him on this. And I doubt whether he can actually do anything significant. And I suspect that's going to cause people in some of those states that he won, like Michigan, not to come out in as big a number. And I think he's got a fight on his hands in those swing states as a result. I personally think Trump should go for a middle ground in between those slogans, um, which is keep making America great. <laughs> <laughs> it rolls off the tongue. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, I, you're available for consultancy no, at any I, time. It doesn't I, have the mag... <laughs> mag how, is it, how is it? Keep making America great. Keep making America great. But I think his main thing needs to be about the, the contrast between himself and what pretty much is an extremist and a very divided... Democratic Party. Democratic looniness is his best friend and his best chance at, at re-election. And I think you can see it as a comparative thing to the Australian election that just happened. Labor kind of ran on this narrative that Australia is kind of a bad place to live and you've got to rip it out root and stem and start again. And that's almost what the Democrats are running on. Well, actually, that's more what they're running on. I would say a more extreme version of that. There are open socialists in their party, and that's what Trump needs to be going after. They hate America, the anti-patriotic part of Democrats, uh, the Democrats, because they don't know really how to respond. Joe Biden doesn't know how to respond to that because there are members of the Democratic Party who want to double and triple down on the socialist thing. I'd like to sort of yeah. return uh, to the uh, Democrats uh, in a sec. Yeah, no, I, I just want to answer your question, though. Oh, go Because I think it is a very serious... I, I don't ask questions so they're answered. And, and for the political junkies... Reasons for me to talk. For the political junkies out there, uh, your question goes to the 1984 Reagan campaign, <laughs> which was... So, 1980, he was elected. America was divided and defeated. And, um, you know, the helicopters in the desert that Jimmy Carter had sent towards Tehran was like the nadir of American prestige. By 1984, Reagan was mourning in America. It was unbelievable. And, you know, so that's the big call to say we've won yeah. and everything's great again. I don't think Trump could credibly pull that off. No. Because that, that is not America. And, and, and Renee, I hear what you're saying, but America does still have a lot of problems. And I think the, the, the trick for, for Trump is still to run as insurgent. I mean, in many ways, that's what, that's what Morrison did from the day 
he was elected. It was like he was campaigning from opposition and Shorten was, was the Prime Minister and worked worked very effectively. Yeah, but at least, I mean, <laughs> we all thought Shorten would lose and certainly this... Oh, sorry, not Shorten. We all thought Scott Morrison would lose and this podcast is definitely no exception to that and we, we made quite some jokes about that at the time, if I recall. Um, but I think the big problem with Trump, surely right now, is that um, he hasn't expanded the base. In it, it, to, There's no reason to believe that he's done so. There's going to be natural attrition because um, uh, it's you know less interesting to vote for the insurgent. Oh, sorry, more interesting to vote for an insurgent than it is to vote for a sitting president. And there will be some other attrition that's sort of fallen away. No, there are Republican voters out there, and I'm not sure how big a percentage this is, who sort of uh, bit their tongue and voted for Trump because they thought he might change in office, he be- might become more presidential. And if you recall 2016, he was saying precisely that. I will be so presidential, it will be boring. Um, and, and, and a number of Republicans voted for that. And then they voted against Hillary Clinton um, because Hillary Clinton was just a just one of the worst possible candidates at that period of time than you can possibly imagine. Now, they might get a um, Bernie Sanders-esque socialist that we can all stand up and oppose that this would be Venezuelan economics, but more likely they're going to get a Joe Biden-esque character who people don't have very strong views about. They just think he's like a normal um, mainstream politician. He's a Democrat, but, you know, sometimes they're Democrats, sometimes they're Republicans. The, the failure to expand the base against a natural attrition is could be catastrophic just on the first instance, right? The base issue is interesting because I've often thought of the Trump presidency as he's kind of got two kind of components. He's got the establishment Republican base and then he's got the MAGA base. And he has done more for the establishment than the MAGA base. Um, all of the things I mentioned, corporate tax cuts, I mean, they're great policies, but they are still Republican establishment policies. Um, conservatives, uh, conservative judges, again, I think that there's a part of the MAGA base that is in favour of that, but it's not a priority um, for them. So he's done more for the establishment than he has for his actual base. And a part of that is just a feature of the system that you just have establishment people by definition in your government, in your administration, and there's no real way around that. You're not going to have a regular Joe from Kansas as Secretary of Defence. It's just not going to happen. So you are surrounded with establishment types, and that means that um, those who lead in Congress and lead in the Senate will push particular legislative um, uh, agendas that are more in line with their priorities, which is um, understandable. And that's why I talked about the wall. I mean, it was really the wall and the swamp were the two things for the base, and he hasn't really delivered on either. As I say, I'm not sure he really can. It's an example of how a deeply embedded, a big government administrative state really cannot be undone, at least not in... I mean, he's only been there for like two or three years, but it, it seems to me that you can't really defeat the establishment from the outside. Yeah, well, talking about that, Daniel, I'd be interested to see your views about expanding the base and maybe that MAGA base. I personally think, um, you know, from watching... Kamaga base. Kamaga. Kamaga. So I was just talking about his campaign launch. I think he had three kind of main topics and one of them was um, kind of victimhood, kind of talking about how the media is attacking him. And I thought that that was an ineffective tactic to expand the base. But that's actually a very um, you know, popular tactic with the MAGA base. They loved it when he was talking about, you know, if, if I just deleted one email, they'll come after me. That, that really resonates with that MAGA base. But I don't think that's a good tactic to bring in more 
centrist voters to to expand the base. And and how big is the, so? There's surely there's a Republican base, and then there's a MAGA subset of the Republican base, and maybe some of them were former Democrats. Um, but the Republican base is is one thing, and that would be a large percentage of the population of the United States. Um, people who vote Republican every time and they'll vote on issues like tax cuts because they look at Trump and say, yeah, he's a Republican and and he's doing roughly Republican things. But the mega base, do we know how big that actually is? The people who wear the hats, the people who um, are deeply passionate, they may be former Democrats. Yeah, he can can fit out a... um, a stadium of 20,000 people, but there's, is it just 20,000 people? How big do we know that this base is? And so when he keeps feeding them more and more stuff, he says, my base is always with me. Well, who cares? It matters because they're the ones he needs to come out. And it matters particularly in certain areas like in the swing states like Michigan and so forth, where there is a small number of votes that's going to determine the outcome. And it is going to be firing up those people to come. I mean, a thousand or two thousand people could make a difference in these states. So it's, it may, I don't know, I can't put a number on the percentage of the whole population, but it's hugely important just from, from getting people out and firing them up and firing up the base. Um, you're not going to fire up someone with corporate tax cuts, but you will fire someone up. I will COVID. be fired up by corporate tax cuts, to be clear. Okay, but, but I, I don't know if that's <laughs> a, 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 war, a, a broad section of, of potential voters. Yeah. That, and, and chances are they're going to vote anyway, right? If someone who's fired up about that is probably going to come out and vote for Trump or Republican anyway, the question is how do you get these other people out to vote? And I think that is the cultural things that, you, that, that you're talking about will get them out. Yeah, and we will, I suspect, be returning to this on future episodes of, do you of Looking maybe, Forward. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. And, we'll, and we'll, have we'll, have a bit, in. we'll have a bit... In between the Israel Folau hour. Yeah, and <laughs> as gonna... when the Democrats <laughs> finally winnow their uh, field down from 20 to something a bit more manageable, we might talk about them <laughs> a little bit more as well and the... Uh, uh, the gerontocracy versus the insurgents on the Democrat side. Ah, but yes, we were talking about one of the th- things that Trump did do was cut taxes and uh, cut red tape. And uh, and now Scott Morrison seems to have uh, found that religion. That's right. So in a speech to the West Australia Chamber of Commerce and Industry on Sunday, um, Scott Morrison laid out um, what he thought would be the economic agenda of the Morrison government. It's nice to hear about it after the election, but that's great. Um, uh, red tape. Um, red tape reduction is the, the really key plank. Um, there's a few parts of it, but... Um, uh, Scott Morrison argued that, and I'll quote him, by focusing on regulation from the viewpoint of business, we will identify the regulations and bureaucratic processes that impose the largest costs on key sectors of the economy and the biggest hurdles to letting those investments flow. Um, Now, of course, the IPA has done a huge amount of work on the red tape reform agenda. Dan, how do you you assess this uh should we be optimistic what should we be doing more of um and and yeah what should the government do now well we should be optimistic until there's reason not to be optimistic oh, that's uh, a good attitude. It's, yeah it's good to uh <laughs> well i mean talking talking I mean, we had no idea what the government was going to be doing a week ago so it's good that they've talked about <laughs> yeah. it's good that they're talking about red tape and industrial relations reform um it's very positive i think th- the key thing here is we know historically governments always talk about red tape reduction and then the outcomes are often less than what you would hope um, and I think the, the reason is there's not a, a very good awareness of the structural drivers of, of regulation and red tape. So you've got pretty, you've got some key political drivers, um, not just political, I would say policy drivers, things like the structure of our federation, um, centralist interpretations by the high court, international environmental treaties. Um, and then when you look at the culture, we have a very, uh, I would argue, increasingly risk averse culture that looks to government to regulate everything. Um, that probably comes with rising incomes, means people 
become less inclined to want to take risks for an extra dollar and are maybe happy to sacrifice um, improvements to living standards to have more regulation. Um, and then you also have the uh, removal of the key functions of parliament to un, un, uh, unelected regulators that are then able to go off and regulate without a lot of transparency. So you have these key drivers and then you, you look at well, what can you do with red tape without addressing those structural factors and there's actually sometimes not a lot. If you really want to have a significant deregulatory effort, you need to be willing to get stuck into some of those structural problems which in Australia really means dealing with the federation and dealing with the growth of, of regulators. What's interesting with Trump is Trump has done some fantastic things on the deregulation front, particularly on energy and getting out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, the EPA, the slice through a lot of uh, the Obama era regulations. That's right, a lot of stuff on environmental regulation. Um, but most of it's been slowing the growth to regulation rather than having deep cuts. And if you look at the size of the administrative state, it hasn't changed. It hasn't grown in terms of numbers and in terms of funding since Trump took office, but it hasn't decreased. And so I think it's very difficult to get substantial structural reductions to to regulation. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. And this is a this is a big problem. And we've been sitting through since at least 1996, 1997, have governments come in, every single government has come in with a deregulation agenda in Australia. Um, the uh, Rudd government, which saw massive regulatory increases, had the Australia's first Minister for Deregulation in Lindsay Tanner. Um, the first act of the Minister for Deregulation, because he was also the Finance Minister, was actually a significant regulatory increase in the financial services sector. So there's a lot of um, sort of, th there's a big paper tiger element to this. The Abbott government claimed to have cut $1 billion from, uh, they had cut regulation that benefited the economy um, $1 billion. Uh, that That is just completely impossible to verify and it's made a lot of sort of funny numbers, I think, a lot of guesswork. And I worry that what Morrison's um, it would very be very easy for the Morrison government to do precisely the same thing. Um, have a showy one or two year regulatory reduction project, make some generic cost estimates about how they've done it, come up with a nice round figure and then and then move on. But what we really need is um, a process by which we can cut regulation and we can verify that it's been cut over the course of not just years, but over the course of terms and even across different governments. And so um, some uh, IPM members will be familiar with some of the work that we've done on reg data and Darcy Allen has written about um, reg data in the uh, Australia's Red Tape Crisis book that I edited with him. And this is, this is a um, new way out of the United States and out of Canada to just measure regulation so that we can, we as in citizens, and think tanks and academics can just see how much regulation there is and hold governments to account when they say they're going to cut it. And it's that holding governments to account that's been, I think, the real failure in red tape reduction until now. So even if the Morrison government didn't do a massive regulatory reduction in its first year or two years or whatever it is, even over a course of 10 years, as long as we could verify and the great thing that they would do, for, they could do for us is to provide us a way to see how much regulation there is. Yeah, both both short and long term. I mean, it was a speech not coincidentally made in WA, home, uh, spiritual home of the, uh, the resources sector, and I fully expect and they absolutely should do something about approval timelines if we want to see uh, investment uh, rise up from its historic lows. You, you can't have projects taking 10 years to get approved. 
Um, and so I expect a lot of uh, short-term focus on that, and I hope that there will be gains, but I think you're absolutely right, Chris. Uh, the Morrison government, and this is the opportunity here. This is the opportunity. So credit to Scott Morrison, Josh Frydenberg, um, uh, for actually putting the spotlight on this. They also have the opportunity to put in place measures that will last beyond that initial window of enthusiasm because cutting red tape is an exhausting business and, and people lose interest, politicians lose interest. So I would say to Scott Morrison, uh, do both, mate, do both. You know, fix up the, the resources sector, do something about those approval timelines, but look at something like uh, Reg Data where you can actually set targets over a, a period of time. So British Columbia, they, they were at it for 10 years to, and they halved the amount of uh, regulation that was faced by the by the society. No, it's extraordinary. And, and reap the economic benefits. And and Australian governments don't like to think about what happens once they lose government. Um, politicians just can't get in their mindset. If you're you you get into parliament or you get into government and you think you'll be there forever, but if a, a, a smart government would be trying to set up systems that constrain their successes, it's not about. Can you use the power of the state to win a temporary victory in the three-year period you've got until you lose government? It's about how can we make long-term changes? How can we change the incentive structure? And Morrison um, and Frydenberg, if um, they're on the ball on this one, will be thinking very deeply about they're probably going to lose in three years. The statistically speaking, they're probably going to lose government. The coalition will lose to Labor in three years. What will the three years of Labor government look like? Can we constrain? Can we affect the choices they make? Yeah, I think... Well, you're saying that governments don't like to think about when they're out of government, but I think that Labor thinks about it a hell of a lot more than the <laughs> Well, I think about it now. <laughs> and, yeah, but, um, I think that in the past they have been much better at hamstringing the next government... Um, with their policies so that they're in a position where they can't change as much. And we see much more big changes under Labor governments in short periods of time. That may be why they become unelectable, but it also <laughs> means that the next government has less ability to reverse what they have done. So I think the Liberals need to start maybe thinking a little bit more like Labor in Yeah, in institutional measures. It's like when Labor created the Australian Human Rights Commission. The Liberals opposed it. In the parliament, yeah, but you, you, it would be really hard to kill. Like we're yeah. against human rights, let's shut it down. That's right. So and once it was in, you can't get rid of it. Yeah. Well, well, not well, that, not that, not that we're going to give up. You definitely can. <laughs> I mean, it's the point that democracy is more than just elections as well. You have to win across other areas in in society and in culture. You have to win the broader arguments. It's not just about winning every three years. But you're right about Labor. They, um, I wouldn't recommend the coalition do this because I think it's. Um, uh, it, it sort of undermines the whole edifice of our democracy, but but nonetheless, nonetheless, here's an idea. <laughs> um, in their last in um, its last term um, of its previous government, they completely booby trapped the budget, so they put in all these expenditure items that were completely outside of the forward estimate. So that technically speaking, it's not even really a policy; it's just like a wish list, like NDIS, um, Gonski funding, uh, NBN, as an example. And then they would say, well, if you're not fully committed to this, then you're actually cutting funding, even though the funding never existed. And so that meant it was actually quite difficult for the coalition to engage in structural budget reform when Abbott came in because there was all these accusations of cutting funding, whereas spending still went up under Abbott. But somehow the narrative was that they're cutting and, that, and they might have reduced the ABC's budget in one year by a very small amount. 
and that was basically it. So yeah, it's clever as all hell. It's and clever, ter- but it's terrible it's, for democracy. It's, it's terrible. Really, really smart. It's smart, but terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why and can't we have a wish list of tax cuts whenever they? Well, that's what they did. Yes. Yeah, so or or regulatory reforms, yeah. or a a system that guarantees um, over X period. Um, the, pro- 10 years. the problem is it's dishonest, right? Because the coalition said we're cutting taxes in the in their last budget. But they really weren't because it was, again, it was over a 10-year period and it's like, well, to, to what extent can you actually genuinely say that a, a policy that's outside of the forward estimates of budget is actually something that has any weight, weighting to it? So, I mean, I agree on the politics of it. I just think it, it really means that the budget becomes a, a sort of a meaningless document in a way and I think that's a shame for for our country. And that is a bigger issue. But, um, uh, uh, Dan, you've done some great work uh, on how to cut red tape. Uh, we will link to that in the notes field because our Cut Red Tape to Unleash Prosperity program, which has been running for a couple of years now, is uh, is rich pickings for a government that's interested in uh, in working out how to do this, uh, how to solve this red tape pro- burden, which is costing the Australian economy $176 billion a year. Great to hear Scott Morrison's actually uh, paying attention and wants to do something about it. Uh, we have reached that section of the program where we talk about our uh, our culture picks. Who wants to take us away? So I, Scott, have been to a few Labor Party functions in my life. Um, and the other night I went to the Whitlam's concert, which was definitely the loudest Labor Party function. It was uh, the Whitlam's, of course, the band from the 1990s playing at the Corner Hotel. Um, I actually didn't know many of the Whitlam songs. We just thought it'd be a fun thing to do because they were playing and knew the song No Aphrodisiac. Turns out they were a really left-wing band. I don't know whether anybody was realised that. I assume they Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> their main song, or one of their, uh, No Aphrodisiac is, of course, their breakout song in the 1990s. Blow Up the Pokies was their other one. The whole the whole point of this um, uh, this concert was it's been 20 years since their album Love This City, which was released, of course, in 1999. He introduced this. So Tim, Tim Friedman is the main singer. He introduced this as a protest album, a protest song against the Olympics. And I was like, yes, fantastic. I hate the Olympics. So I'm going to quote the, the lyrics for a second um, uh, with your indulgence. So no relation to Milton Friedman. No relation to Milton Friedman, no. Um, uh, Tim Friedman. Um, so the, the, the song, the song, You Gotta Love This City, which is, of course, about Sydney. Um, it was busy everywhere he went. There was a crowd over the bay and a fireworks display. It was all very strange for a Thursday night, thought he. Then it dawns on him as a cracker explodes. And who the hell is he going to blame? It dawns on him the horror. We've got the Olympic Games. And I agree. What a horror. What a horror. Is he, is he against congestion for other reasons or just Olympics? No, just the Olympics. Okay. Um, they opened with their song, um, Goff, which of course describes how Goff Whitlam, um, a hero of the Labour cause, was betrayed um, on November 11. And anyway, so it, it, was, it was a fun night. But um, uh, I'm not, I don't think there were many um, uh, MAGA hats in the audience. No. And I'm not sure a lot of co- conservative voters. Actually went to to my first concert ever when I was 15 years old. Really? the Whitlam's. <laughs> and my f- parents were very big fans and the music was always playing my house, especially goth. But it <laughs> ob- obviously had no lasting effect on your politics, Renee. Yes, definitely. But yeah. I still actually play the Whitlam's in my house and, and Zach is a big fan too, so. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. yeah, well, there you go. Music doesn't convert you. Um, <laughs> speaking of um, uh, lefties... Um, <laughs> Good segue. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's why they pay you the big bucks. Just um, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, no, I was, I was in uh, a bookstore the other day. I was picking up uh, Troy Bramston's new um, uh, biography of 
uh, Robert Menzies, which in fact we'll be uh, talking about uh, with Troy on a future Looking Forward podcast. And I found in uh, on the counter this uh, little penguin sort of, you know, 60-page leaflet. Um, and it was by, it's called No One Is Too Small To Make A Difference. And it's by Greta Thunberg or Thunberg. Um, my Swedish is a bit rusty. Um, she is the 16-year-old uh, Swedish girl who's been uh, leading a lot of the uh, the climate change campaigning. She's tied up with uh, Extinction Rebellion. She invented the school strike movement, uh, which has uh, gone around the world, or at least the the, the Anglo um, world, uh, right, including in Melbourne. Uh, so this is everything from. Uh, so she's not uh, part of uh, Extinction Rebellion, but uh, she's addressed some of the the crowds. And uh, a really interesting cultural character. This is a collection of speeches. And um, on one hand, of course, it's nice to see 16-year-olds that actually care about issues and, and want to get involved. Um, I wish I'd had a book contract at the age of 16. <laughs> that's right. And, uh, uh, I, I don't just, know if that's a book. Look at the font in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look how big that font is. It's, it's a, that's <laughs> right. To be clear, this is a podcast, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Describe yeah. for the yeah. listeners. Cameras, check that out. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but it, it, it is, it is actually, to be honest, this is quite terrifying. Um, you know, I have uh, objected nearly everything she says about, um, uh, in this, in this book. Uh, it is totally reliant on, uh, IPCC. It's like a source of authority. I thought being young, you were against authority, but this is all about the IPCC says this. Uh, this is all true, therefore we must eliminate all carbon emissions, you know, by 2030 uh, in the West. It's, it's, and there's sort of the, this is what it must have felt like for a professor in China in about 1967 when they looked out their window and saw the, you know, the red guards coming towards, or, you know, the, the students waving the little red books. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, she actually says she sees everything in black and white and she says it's because of, it could be because of my Asperger's, but I think it's a good thing. You know, it, it's a it's a shut, uh, lay down case for immediate and massive climate change action. But all she ever quotes is headline numbers. Um, so I shouldn't be beating up on a 16-year-old girl, but honestly, it is terrifying because she has no conception of what the measures that she's talking about would actually mean for the world. Um, she She says, listen to the science, but she doesn't. Uh, she doesn't actually quote any of it in particular. It's all argument from authority. Um, and Greta, if you're listening, which I doubt you are, but if you're listening, the map is not the territory. Just because you've looked at a graph saying it's it's feasible to eliminate all carbon emissions in the OECD by 2030 doesn't mean that you can't do it without... Well, it doesn't mean you, you can actually do it and it certainly doesn't mean that you could conceivably do it without destroying everything in, in its path. So. My prediction is she'll be conservative in 10 years. I'm going to say <laughs> 10 years, not five, I reckon 10. It's interesting. Yeah. I want to ask you about something with that, with uh, more children getting involved. Like I, mm. I've seen it as like the infantilization of our country, of our society, of our way of life, that children are said to be um, the, the authority on issues, do you think it's just a political thing? No, like, you I, don't feel comfortable no, attacking I, I, a 16-year-old. No, yeah, look, I, I th no, I actually think <laughs> not this, on this podcast. This, this, is, this has <laughs> no, no. I, I think it's part of human nature. I mean, I mean, we look to our our children because they bring fresh eyes, and you know they're uncontaminated by all the 
uh, the dreadful compromises that, that adults make. I mean, but this is like the children's crusade. That's what you, I mean. You know, from the 14th century. So I, th- I think this is actually something deep in human nature um, to, to be attracted to this. But, I mean, to see, um, you know, the... Yeah, she's gone to Davos. You know, you could just imagine, you know, all the all the all the creeps at Davos. You know, genuflecting um, as as she's talking. It, it, it's like Joan of Arc. It's, it's like let's abase ourselves before because you know she's pure and she's got the message. But what she's talking about is actual rubbish. Um, so I don't think it's anything new, and it's, it's not even necessarily a feature of left wing politics. But it's it's certainly embarrassing when world leaders actually listen to this rubbish. It's a search for the sort of politically uncorruptible. Or uncorrupted yet, or something like that. There's yeah. something creepy though. But about but then you get yeah. but then there's something deeply creepy about you know, and it suits the purposes of something like the IPCC. That's what's that's what's deep. I, I have no doubt about her sincerity. Um, but anyway, I think it is a, a part of the left right now because I think if there was a right wing equivalent of that girl who was 16 years old who came forth, you know, and saying climate change is a hoax, the left would not be afraid to bash that 16 year old. They would, the, say, they, yeah, they would say, yeah, they would say child abuse or they would but use there, all But there are lots of, I mean, so, I mean, good on her, I guess, because there's lots of 16-year-olds who think that climate change is a problem and there are lots of 16-year-olds who don't. I mean, it's great that, I mean, she has managed to get the attention that she has, but um, good on her. What a what an entrepreneur. But, um, uh, well, it's, it's probably more her parents than her, <laughs> I would suspect. Let's leave let's, the 16-year-old. Let, let's assume <laughs> her sincerity and, and there's a lot of chatter around that. No, I'm just, I'm looking at the book as an artifact. It is my culture pick. It is your culture yes. pick. And, and, and it's a fascinating insight into something. Well, going from <laughs> that terrifying thing to something that's supposed to be terrifying, actually looking at the back of this cover, she's actually wearing what looks like the raincoat from It. Oh, um, oh dear. The anybody movie. else seen the reboot? The um, yellow raincoat. Yeah. Yellow raincoat from It, which was also a reboot, and I'm actually also talking about another This reboot. is how you do segues, Scott. This is also, how you do segues. I, I bow <laughs> to, the, to the acknowledged master now. Uh. So, um, yeah, there was a reboot of It a few years ago that was incredibly popular, and now there has been a reboot of Child's Play. I am an incredibly big fan of horror films. Um, nice break from the real horror of politics. And it was an interesting film to see because I actually thought it would be a much better film if it wasn't a reboot. It would have been a much better standalone film. It was an interesting concept. Um, In the original series, if you've seen it, Chucky is possessed by a criminal's spirit. Um, Chucky's the doll, yeah? Yeah, Chucky's the doll. So he's an evil doll and in the original he's possessed by an evil spirit and... He comes after you. Um, so he's got a character. He's, he's like a little person. Um, in this version, he's just a um, kind of a robot toy for a kid that's malfunctioned. Oh. So he doesn't have a persona. Oh, there's something deep there, isn't there? Yeah. So I don't know actually, what it is, but it seems. <laughs> so it's kind of <laughs> technology turning against us um, kind of concepts, which yeah. kind of taps into... Something that I think a lot of us kind of think about. Um, we're going into a, a new age of technology. So I think it would have been better if they hadn't attached the Child's Play mm. reboot to it and just run that story pure because it was inc- incongruent. Like, oh, it's this new robot toy um, in the modern times that, that can talk and, and tap into all your technology. And AI uses blockchain yeah. and then it's become How self-aware. How do you? For some reason it still looked like Chucky kind of, but if they built a robot these days that was going to do those things, it wouldn't look like Chucky. So it was kind of forcing this 
old narrative on a new narrative, which I think is reflective of a problem in Hollywood right now where everything has to be a safe bet. So they're mm. not going to invest in a new idea, a completely new concept. It's like the director had to find an old property and kind of twist it and kind of malshape it to get across a new idea. And I think that's a really worrying pattern we're seeing in films. There's also just a lot of reruns going on, isn't yeah. there? Like redos. I don't know if this is something that's recent or has been historically done, but it does seem over the last 10 years there's been a lot of reruns of old movies oh, bringing absolutely. back old... I don't know, in America they have a lot of old sitcoms. Roseanne was brought back for a while until that blew up, but it's kind of strange that everything... I, old is coming back again. I'm more sympathetic to that and we should probably have an hour-long podcast on this particularly because um, I quite like the idea that we're building more and more complex fictional universes and we can drop in and out of those universes and pull different stories as well. The other thing is um, it, we sort of say the golden age of cinema or the 1940s or 70s or whenever we decided it is that was, you know, they were so original. Most of those were books. Yeah. <laughs> um, most of them, like, they, they, they come from pre-existing cultural properties already and, and yeah, I mean, it, it is getting a bit absurd. I saw Toy Story 4 um, over the weekend. <laughs> Have um, they ruined it or is it still uh, No, it's actually pretty nice. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, no. It, it's, <laughs> someone pointed out uh, uh, the... Um, in the first Toy Story, it's like, is it? Wouldn't it be fun if the children, if toys were alive? And by the end of it, it's like, what if toys had existential crises and were in terror of actually existing? And what if, what if toys? Yeah, Toy Story Two is what if toys got sad when you left? What if toys? <laughs> and it's just what if toys are facing their own mortality? And now it's <laughs> what if toys have discovered that they're monstrous um, beings that have been invented out of no- anyway. So, so it's, to- Toy Story is slowly going to become Chucky. Yeah, that's no, that's precisely saying. right. It's no. just a deeper and deeper existential. No, a future, a future podcast. <laughs> future podcast. Uh, is uh, the ex- the redos a good thing, or is it the exhaustion of Western civilization? <laughs> definitely, just the, prior to its imminent. Definitely collapse. the latter. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that, that's a good debate to have. And what and what's yours, Dan? Well, I can't segue from that, so I'm just going <laughs> to say it. I've been watching uh, the Cricket World Cup, which is on, so it's on at the moment in England and Wales. Uh, Australia is doing very well. We had a great win last night slash this morning against England. Uh, the reason it's good is because because we're winning again at cricket, which is great. <laughs> we're winning at sport in tennis. Uh, Ash Barty at tennis is winning. Uh, I think it's great for national mood, national confidence to have sporting teams that win. And it's also good that cricket isn't like rugby at the moment or like AFL. It's an interesting distinction between the two where... In the good old days, you just turn on the sport and it's a, uh, sort of a relaxing thing to do. And that's how I felt watching the cricket. Uh, watching football, as an example, is not relaxing anymore. It is a anxiety-ridden uh, <laughs> process because nobody knows what the rules are. Um, you're scared of getting kicked out of the stadium if you say something, which is foot- uh, cricket doesn't change. It's the same rules. Um, it's a relaxing um, thing to watch. And so um, that's how I think all sport should be in the sense that it's just about the sport. Um, and I think Australia's got a very good chance of winning. Might lose to India in the final, but it's been successful. Steve Smith and David Warner, who have, of course, come back from a year's suspension, have been doing extremely well. David Warner is the top scorer in the World Cup, notwithstanding all this criticism of him. Um, I think it's fantastic they've been able to come back into the team and, and to be very successful. And Aaron Finch has actually finally got amongst the runs again, he's just at the am- right time. He's getting amongst the runs and Mitchell Stark is getting amongst the wickets. So it's a very exciting time. We've got the Ashes 
as well in a couple of months, and then of course the summer season here. So it's it's shaping up to be pretty good. So sort your, of twelve your, months of your cricket. your cultural reflection on cricket is that there is actually no cultural reflection. It, That's it, right. It is just cricket. That's right. That's exactly what it should be. And it should just be cricket and nothing else. What and a, it's what an it's optimistic not a, end to the podcast. It's Thank not a, you, It doesn't have to. Be, not everything has to be a statement about a belief. It's just you can watch the cricket. And then you can do something else, <laughs> and that can, that you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to do that still. And then write your MP about something else. Yeah, about <laughs> something. Not the cricket. Don't change the cricket. No, very, that if is Dan it. ever runs for parliament, his his slogan will be "Let's Let it, just yeah, play cricket." Just shut up, baby. Just don't <laughs> change. That's yeah, what it will be. You have been listening to Looking Forward, in which the views of the panelists do not necessarily reflect the views of the IPA, and we'll let you work out which ones do and which ones don't. Um, to access our research, to join or do. Donate, please go to ipa.org.au. Our end of financial year appeal is in full swing, so up to midnight on uh, 30 June, you should be able to go to our website and uh, support our research. A big thank you to our panellists today, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Daniel Wilde. Thank you. And, of course, Renee Gorman. Thank you. And, as always, our producer, James Bolt. Thanks very much. Uh, We'll be back with more. Looking forward next week.